All right, so this is John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your words. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one, as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you, those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that, the world, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, first of all, Lord, for this for this day that we can that we can come and gather. I thank you for everyone who's made it here, Lord, with the travel disruption. I just thank you that we can gather, Lord, and worship and and just read and hear this amazing word. So Lord, I just pray that you'll be with us today, Lord. Please, um, Lord, please, please bless this service, Lord. Please do what you want to do. Speak to us what you want to say in this service, Lord. I just thank you for this amazing insight into the heart of your son, Lord. Um, just that, which really reveals what you think about us, Lord, and what you 
what you want for us Lord you love Lord you love us as you love your son and Lord you want us to be one that much so Lord please let please let these amazing truths that are in this passage really sink into us today Lord um, yeah, so please bless our fellowship today and um, let everything we do Lord be for the building up of each other Lord um, yeah, so Lord please just have your way in this time Lord we just offer it to you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Hello, everyone. Well, that was very whelming. Let's try it again. Hello, everyone. Thank you. I was just hoping you were there. Okay. I would start this as I would any by saying, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be that for which you test all things, true or false, me included. When you want to look at a couple, and we've done marriage counseling, couple counseling for over 30 years, one of the first things you watch is their communication. You watch whether they speak respectfully, whether they listen, whether they speak out or they speak with. I mean, these things are very important. Matter of fact, you can probably gauge all of your relationships by that to some degree. When things are strained, when things are rough, when there are unresolved conflict, they always tend to make their way into the conversation or non-communication, if you will. And might I say... When you see somebody and you think, wow, look at that person's walk with God. Look at that brand of Christianity. That example. How do I get like that? I'd like to suggest you might find it in the same. It's in their prayer life. Because as Christians, one of the things we, we fundamentally stress is that this is a relationship. This isn't a politic. It isn't just a movement. It isn't just a mindset and an ideal or a club or something, some church that you join and then therefore God's taking group reservations and it's sort of a get out of hell free card. This is a relationship and of course he's going to make that perfectly clear here in verse 3. And please understand here, we have a very, very rare moment with Jesus. Exclusive to the Gospel of John is this text. After this text, in John chapter 18, verse 1, what we read is that Jesus crosses the brook Kidron and then makes his way into the Gethsemane, where he will have a mental breakdown. I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but this week I've had the opportunity to sort of lay awake on several occasions considering where Jesus is heading as he prays this prayer on the way to that one. In the garden, where John will not spend time on because the other three gospel writers have already taken their time. Well, let me ask you this. Let's put it this way. If I dare challenge you to think of the things that you would not want to look at in your life that are in your past that you have your greatest regrets over. Those things you don't want to look at because the moment you look at it, even for a moment, you feel the pain, the loathing, the disgust, the abhorrence because you just know somewhere in all of that you think, I must be a monster for that. Because somewhere in our heart, we look back at that and there's a part of our heart that looks and goes, that's just wrong, that's nasty, that's filthy, that's disgusting, that's abhorrent. But our hearts are not perfectly pure. Imagine if you took your most horrible thing and made it a memory 
upon a perfect, pure heart, how that person would respond. For the grieving that we would experience, the loathing, the disgust, could only be but exponentially felt. And then add upon that every horrible thought, every horrible deed, every horrible thing ever done in mankind. And for Jesus to have all of that upon his heart, perfect and pure, sinless and without any taint or hint of sin, shouldn't surprise us he sweats like drops of blood. This week it keeps me up thinking about that. What it would be like to just take all of the sins in this room and entertain them as if they were my memories. And not because I think you're all horrible, nasty sinners and we won't compare. But because it's just more. Unique to the Gospel of John is 94% of this Gospel is unique material. Unique to the Gospel of John is this chapters 13 through uh, 8 through 17 here. And then we'll see Jesus' arrest in 18. And in 14 through 16, as we're aware of, Jesus has done a great deal of teaching. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus said, In the world you will have flipsies, tribulation. The word's based in this idea of pressure. In the world, you're going to have lots of pressure. But, cheer up. Tharsejo. Take courage. Take comfort. I've overcome the world. That was Jesus' last teaching statement to his disciples. Do you know that? Before he was crucified. His teaching now is concluded with that statement. And now Jesus begins this conversation with the Father. He had taught us, and if you remember from last week as we looked at it, he told us three simple things and we were kind of embracing the concept of mikron. That everything sort of comes to pass. It's a little thing. A passing thing. And that it's in this world, in cosmos. But Jesus is overcome. Nike. And Jesus now begins to pray. And in, in this prayer, we could spend years on this prayer alone. And what it would be like, but think about the kindness of God to give us this intimate moment between the Son and His Father. This moment which we really shouldn't be privy to other than by God's kindness. A moment of, of, of gentleness, of concern. The cross staring him in the face, his arrest, his betrayal, his abuse, his torture, all directly in front of him, for which he knows. His desertion and abandonment by every person that's around him, they're all going to scatter when, he comes, when he's arrested. But yet Jesus can't stop praying for us. And there are five basic things he prays for in this. And of course, you have this habit of kind of sectioning them off because it helps us remember them, helps me remember them at least. And I'd like you to look at those with me, but I'd like you to consider the fact that Jesus, in this prayer, this conversation with the Father, is also reporting in. There are nine different things Jesus will actually say he's done. 
like the one who has been given the talent and then is being held accountable. It's like, what you've told me to do, I've done. I've completed it, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And he'll pray at least seven things for us which fit into these five categories very safely. But I'd like you for a moment to do more than just kind of gather this around like we're in essence sitting before a two-dimensional library of information about God. I'd like you to hear the steps of, of one who is walking to their arrest. What John's going to tell us in John 18 is that Jesus isn't just randomly heading into a place that we would call Gethsemane, which means the olive press on the Mount of Olives, which is a perfect place for an olive press since there are olives. But what he tells us is that they had met regularly in this same spot. In other words, Jesus has already pre-selected the place of his arrest. And every time he was there praying with his boys, something must have been clear in his head that this is going to be soon. This is going to be the place where he's arrested. While the rest of us, if we were his disciples, were just praying because that's what we do there. And we've asked Jesus, hey, teach us to pray. Not teach us how, but teach us to pray. And Jesus says, well, let me kind of give you an example. And he gives us that, which we call the Our Father, right? And, and as, as he prays that prayer, and then he says, by the way, don't make this a vain repetition, but we call it the Our Father. And we, someone will say, you need to pray that prayer 17 times. And I think that's interesting because the very next thing he said is, don't just repeat this over and over again without having a meaning to it. Because let's face it, in any relationship where people are just saying things because they're just used to saying them, they don't have any purpose and meaning anymore. But this is a, this is a genuinely humble prayer. And it's a very intimate and it's a very tender prayer between a son and his father. And we have the privilege of being able to listen in. But I remind you, our last words he said to us is, in this world, there will be trouble. You'll have pressure. But take courage, take comfort. I've overcome the world. 17 verse 1, Jesus spoke these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He knows where the Father is. And he starts by saying, Father. Four different times in this text he'll call him Father, once he'll call him Holy Father, once he'll call him a Righteous Father, and once he'll call him the one true God. This is not Sir. And in some of our cultures, I recognize, that's a really rough place to start. To not have a father and to try to hear this and try to get over the idea of a term like this. The one thing Jesus could claim is that he had a perfect father. I strive to be that. There's no way I know I'm going to be or have been. But I adore my children. I don't think anyone here that knows me thinks otherwise. The term father is the term Abba. It's an intimate term of somebody that has a relationship with their father not just somebody that has taken the position of authority over them as a man. He's his father. Not sir. Not something flowery. If you have a good relationship with your dad, you know that there are times when you talk and it's 
no longer protocol. It's just genuine conversation. I hear the difference in my kid's voice. I know when my when my children call me father, that means they want something. But when they say dad, hey dad, they could probably get a lot more for it, so don't tell them that since they're not here. My heart is wide open. And I wonder how many times I pray Father in heaven with the idea of of that. We also, by the way, have code words for both of our kids. If they were to say, to call me specific certain titles or names, I know that means they're in trouble. And then look at this and he starts, Father, the hour has come. This is not a surprise to him. All the way back in John chapter 2, if you remember at the wedding, there was no wine. They'd run out of wine and his mother turns to him and says, they have no wine. And he says, remember woman, which is a term of respect, mind you, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. He knew that his hour was coming all the way back then. When the time came for the feast in John chapter 7, his brothers turned and said, why don't you just go and show yourself to everyone? Come on, man, nobody does this in secret. Loose paraphrase, but you got to go, oh, look at You just need to know, my time has not yet come, but for you any time works. Later on in that chapter, they want to seize him in John 7.40, but his hour hadn't come yet in 8.20. They want to do the same, his hour had not yet come. In other words, until you, and this thing with you, God's counted your breaths, and I want you to know you're not going to take one too few or many. In the end of it all, he knows exactly how many breaths you're going to take. And until then, you are impervious to death. But in chapter 12, he says, what do you think? Should I say to the Father, save me from this hour? It's this reason I came, is for this hour. When Jesus got up to wash his disciples' feet in John 13, he said Jesus knew his hour had come, and that's how he begins it. And now he looks to the Father and he goes, okay. In other words, his eye is on his execution now. Might I say, and please hear me on this, if all Jesus could see was the cross, who would want to go? But on the other side of the cross was you and me. Because on the other side of the cross, that cross was the purchase of all of our guilt and our shame and our dishonor. And there he could pay it all. But looking on the other side of it, he had to see us because if it wasn't for that, who would go? And I know that because it tells me in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning a shame. The joy set before him, what joy could there possibly be on that cross? You, you were the joy. It was your face that he could see and say, this is worth it. But at this moment, the cross is right in front of him, if you will. And he's looking, he's going, Dad, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Let your son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on the earth, and I've given, and I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, that the glory in which I had with you before the world was. The first of those five things that Jesus is praying for is clarity for you and me. The clarity in two specific areas here and notice what they are. 
The first is glorify your son. The word glorify, dokzabzo, means to show something for what it really is. And it's five times said in the first five verses. But when Jesus wants to listen, he's praying to the Father, Father, please let them see me for who I really am. Not just some homeboy. Not just somebody, not just someone we can kind of hang out with and, you know, and they can plagiarize and they can criticize and they can blaspheme all over the walls of our Camden. Let them see me for who I really am, glorious with you, Father. The glory that we had before, before any of this ever started, before there ever was a world, before there was ever an Adam or an Eve or a fall, before there was ever any of this stuff, there was a glory. And I know that because Philippians 2 tells me that Jesus himself, considering it not robbery to be counted equal with God, made himself of no reputation in taking on the form of a man. In other words, there was a glory that Jesus possessed before there was ever any of this. And he goes, man, wouldn't it be great if they could see me for who I really am? Please understand, there's something beautiful about faith that has to override our ability to logic. And now that doesn't mean we shut off our brains. We engage them, but we engage them to the full. But there are times where what happens is God has this math that is beyond our dimension to where two things that look parallel can actually cross. Or two things that look like they head in opposite directions can intersect. And therefore, God throws these things that seem paradoxical and unreconcilable. And somehow in all of that, faith says they still fit within the same universe. Which includes, how could someone who is completely, perfectly pure and holy still walk among us and have interface with us? Perfectly unholy and impure and filthy things that we could be. God doesn't ask us to explain it. He asks us to trust Him. And that's where faith steps in. That's why it tells us to trust in Him with all of our heart, not lean upon our own understanding. You realize, you can't really do the second if you don't do the first. Well, or if you don't lean upon your understanding without trusting Him, you actually just become a buffoon. But in this, understand what He's saying is, I want them to see me for who I really am. And what's interesting is what they're going to see is someone perfectly pure and holy, but perfectly surrendered and sacrificial for us. Perfectly in love. Because this is love praying. And I realize as I'm praying for you, this week I pray, God, let them know you, who you really are. Because we tend to, usually we tend to carve off one end or the other or both. One side that God's kind of holy, you know, because he's totally accessible. Or on the other side, he's so holy, but he's kind of accessible. But the fact that he's totally holy and totally accessible is a mind blow. And we have to fall upon the bed of faith at a point like that. Because if we don't, we have no parachute. And I realize as we look at this, that's where he wants to start this. But the second thing is that they need to have clarity on what eternal life is. Eternal life is not a ticket to heaven. And Jesus didn't die for you to send you to heaven. Heaven's just a benefit of it. Because it's where he lives. And if he's going to spend the rest of eternity with you, you might as well live with him. But notice in verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life. That they would know you. The one true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Real, eternal life is knowing him. Knowing, not knowing about him. Not just getting stats and figures, but having a relationship with Him. It's imperative to know that according to Scripture, everybody's going to dwell eternally somewhere. This isn't about eternal existence. 
Because you're going to dwell eternally somewhere. There's no scripture that teaches annihilation. The question is, are you going to spend eternity with or without him? And this is how we can have eternal life starting now, is to know him. Because I don't want you just to think eternal life is joining a church or eternal life is just banking on some grace thing, you know, where in the end of it all, it's just a license for you to be completely licentious. He goes, I want you to realize this is about a relationship. And when it becomes about that, every, every decision I make is changed. It's weird to think 28 years ago, well, 28 and a half years ago, now I married this beautiful young lady who's now a beautiful youngish lady who, uh, who is still amazing in every way. And I, and I look at this and I realize I didn't marry her so that I could change my status on Facebook. I mean, back then we didn't have Facebook. Back then it was two things. It was a face and a book. That was all you had. Now they put them together. But, and I still don't use Facebook. But it is important to note that it was about a relationship and it has always been about a relationship. And when it ceases to be about that, it'll never be a good thing. Just please let them know what eternal life really is. It's not being a part of a church. Though, you will become part of the church. It's not about whether you have to tithe or whether or not you have to pray these kind of lengthy prayers. Let's face it. If all your prayers are written down, well, unless you do that with all of your closest friends, I think it's kind of a weird thing. Because somewhere down the line, it has to pour forth from your heart. Now, maybe you can write it down when it does that. That's up to you. Again, you've, that's your personality. But he says they need to know that what real eternal life is, is having a relationship with you. And if our sin has separated us from him, then Jesus is going to the cross for good purpose. He's going to look at if the only thing between God and you is your filth, then Jesus says, I'll put it upon me and nail it to the cross so there's nothing between us anymore except your choice. And Jesus says, well, this is what I've done to help with that. I've glorified you. Look at verse 4. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you've given to me to do, which of course is important because Jesus will say it is finished, of course. By the way, I don't know if you're aware of that. When Jesus says it is finished, tetelestai, it's unique to the Gospel of John. The same person that records Jesus saying, I've finished the work which you've given me to do and now glorify me together with you. And we start with this. Do you really know who Jesus is? Or are you conceding to... And by the way, since he's perfect, you can't improve it. So anything else is going to make him less. A good teacher, but Jesus taught he was God. A miracle maker? Sure, but Jesus said his miracles testify that he's God. And that he's the redeemer of all mankind. The way, the truth, the life. Not a way, not an option, but the option. And it's imperative to recognize. Jesus is praying, you need to know this. And by the way, for those who will be around on Wednesday when we talk about Colossians, by the way, a church that is being absorbed by philosophies and argumentations and all kinds of sort of heady stuff, uh, the point is, is that he makes this one statement that's in essence supposed to be the A-bomb of the whole thing in Colossians. 2.10 when he says you are complete in him it's not Jesus plus Jesus plus our pamphlet Jesus plus our denomination or non-denomination Jesus plus he goes it's Jesus it's just Jesus that's what you need here 
God's made it simple. Let's face it, the more, the more you know, items you add to the recipe, the more complicated it is to make. Do you know Him? And do you really know what it means to have eternal life? And if you do, do you have eternal life? Or are you still kind of banking on the fact that God's going to look for good people? The problem is, read Romans 2 and 3 for yourself. What it tells us is there's no one good but Him. I mean, it all depends on what your standard is. You're going to compare yourself to someone else. Here's the problem. Is no matter who we are, we can always find somebody worse off than us, we think. Right? And if, you know, all fails, use Hitler. Right? Don't most people like, oh, this is bad as Hitler. You know? Well, it's, you know, it's like someone out there does something horrible and horrendous. We're like, well, good news. I've got another person that I can bank on and say I'm not as bad as this person. But do you really think heaven's going to be heaven if only people that are better than them get in? Doesn't sound like heaven to me. What about the person who's just mildly better than Hitler? Do you want him as your neighbor? Eternal life starts right now, friends, and it is about knowing him. So Jesus says in verse 6, I've manifested your name. And it's imperative, this is how we bring this clarity to really help people understand, like ourselves. We clarify who Jesus really is. We clarify what eternal life really is. And how do we do that? How, how did Jesus do it? He glorified the Father as should I. He manifested the Father's name. He had given them the Father's words. We live it out. We live out who He is. We teach what His word says. And it says in verse 8, I've given them the words in which you've given me and they've received them and have surely known I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. It's interesting. In receiving God's words, they realize who is really sent from God. And then he says, I pray not just for them. I don't pray for for the world. And you think, well, that's an interesting statement to make. Why isn't Jesus praying for the world? But for those whom you have given me, for they're yours, all mine are yours, all yours are mine and I'm glorified by them. Please share me in this. <clears throat> I mean, it must have been 20, 25 years ago. You're praying. I don't know if you're anything like me. I pray, God, make the difference. Make me a difference maker, an agent of change. I don't know whether it's delusions of grandeur or it's a savior complex or what, but I just, I have, I, I, I'm allergic to mediocrity. It nauseates me, especially in myself. And I had just been teaching through, at that time I was teaching at a secondary school, and I was just teaching through second, or first John chapter 2, one of my favorite texts, where John starts in chapter 2, verse 1, with, Beloved, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous, who was the propitiation, the elasmus, it's the ransom payment for our sins, and not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, I'm trying to play it out, and here's kind of the way it works. I'm going to use Mike as an example here. Somewhere down the line, Mike's going to stand before the great courtroom of life. Now, there is a jury that takes place until that point. It's in his own heart. Mike's got decisions to make. But one day, he's going to stand before the great judge of men. And when he does, the enemy, who is the accuser of the brethren, will throw out his charges. So imagine, if you will, he did this, he did that, and let's be honest, this is one place where the enemy doesn't have to lie. With all due respect to Mike, I'm sure Mike's given him ample information. Not because Mike's anything different than any one of us. He happens to be human and it comes part and parcel with us being human. 
And it's like the worst part is he'll, he could bring up things that Mike's forgotten by now. Remember in third grade? Cause he's an American. We can say that. Remember in third grade when you did that, this little Susie, what's her name? You know, oh, remember when you were 13 and oh, 16, let's bring up those situations. And after, how long does this enemy have to go before you're like, yeah, I deserve hell. Imagine how often, how long he can go. And then the longer he talks and the longer he talks, the deeper Mike's head hangs. And he gets to that, oh, I suck. And then he looks next to him. And next to him happens to be his defense attorney. It happens to be Jesus, who is promptly played at this particular moment by Eddie. And Eddie stands up. And he starts by saying, Dad, to the judge, may I approach the bench? The father says, Sure. Come on, son. So Jesus just comes up and he says, Dad, I paid for all that. And the father opens up the book and he looks. And every page is covered in blood. When he's like, hmm, yeah, I don't see any of those charges you're talking about. Because they've all been washed. They've all been washed in the blood of Jesus, the very thing that Jesus is facing here in our text. Does that make sense? Oh, I've been teaching this and praying, God, make us a difference. And I'd ask them, well, if that would be the case, would there be evidence in this case of Michael's conversion, what difference has it made? In our situation, imagine that Michael actually had said no to Jesus. Where Michael doesn't want Jesus as his defense attorney. And he's going to actually try after, let's just say, I don't know, if, let me use myself as an example to try to not pick on Mike. Uh, maybe a couple years. The enemy goes a couple years long with my accusations, which I'm certainly given him all of that in my times past. Who in their right mind, it's actually rather appropriate, who in their right mind stands up after all of that and says, Your Honor, I'm a good person. Really, after all of that? I've, I've done good things too compared to what we've just heard. God's not asking for you to outdo your bad. God's asking for you to let him pay for it. This is why Jesus can pray for the lost. He wants us to pray for the lost so that we'll be available to reach them. He wants them his. But as long as they refuse him, what can he say? I offered, but they refused. That really doesn't work so well in the courtroom drama now, does it? And Jesus says, look at, let me tell you who I am praying for though. I'm praying for those that have said yes to me. Now, verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. So I come to you, Father, Holy Father. And this is our second thing he's asking. Our first is clarity. Our second is safety. Keep through your name, those who have you given me, that they may be one as we are, which, by the way, will be the key theme in regards to the result. There will be joy as a result, but one of the fundamental aspects is the unity of believers. By the way, 
intolerant to sin, but tolerant to personality. Tolerant to the differences in culture. Tolerances in the ways that we may lean. There are churches that the moment it starts, everybody's hooting and hollering and doing laps. I've been to most of all of, actually I've been to all of those things. You know? And it's like, praise God for places like that. And there are other places where everything's totally silent. And there, I mean, I've been to church services where it was a complete hour of silence. But for a person who really likes it quiet, the first church would freak them out. And for a person who likes the first church, the second church will kill them, or at least put them to sleep. Praise God, we have both. But what Jesus says is, could you keep them? There's different words for keep. For instance, the word custodia, like to be a custodian, to actually oversee. But there's the word tebecho, and tebecho means to guard, keeping your eye upon something precious that it wouldn't be stolen. It's the word that's actually used in verse 11. There's another word, fulasa, which means to detain. And that particular guards like you guard a criminal. That word's not used here. He will use another word, by the way, in, where he'll actually talk about that, and that is actually in verse uh, 12, where he'll use the word philosophy with the idea of actually containing somebody to keep them from running out to their own harm. So verse 11, in essence, is to guard from invasion. Verse 12 is to guard from escape. He says, again, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, so I come to you, Holy Father, keep them through your name, the ones you've given me, that they may be one as I. In other words, if God doesn't keep them, we get divided. Did you notice that? While I was in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept. There's a philosophy. I've kept them from escape, that none of them is lost except the son of perdition. You know that term, son of perdition, is only used twice in Scripture? It's used here and in Second Thessalonians 2, 3 of the Antichrist. Something to ponder. That the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, it says here, But now I come to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of this world just as I'm not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them, terejo, that first word, guard from invasion, from the evil one. They're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Now please hear me, and I'll try to develop these a little quicker for the sake of time, but it is imperative to recognize that what Jesus is saying is, I would like, Father, for you to keep them safe spiritually. How do you keep them safe spiritually? Keep them from the evil one. But here's the most amazing thing is where people normally go in this sort of, when we kind of get to the sort of hyper touchy feely thing in regards to the enemy. According to scripture, John 8, 44, Jesus called him a liar, literally called him the father of lies. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he's called the tempter. Listen to these three things. He is the liar. He's the accuser, and he's the tempter. Guess what they all have in common? They all have talk in common. It is amazing how some people want to focus on the fact, like what they're actually thinking is, well, when Jesus is saying this, what he's saying is, don't let Satan give me the flu. Don't let Satan actually let me have one of those diseases. Because if I get Ebola out on the mission field, clearly that's Satan. But that's not what Jesus is saying in any of this text. What Jesus is saying is that I want them safe spiritually and I recognize there are three things that will keep them from being safe spiritually. The first is that they will actually listen to lies. And the enemy loves to lie. The second is that they'll listen to accusations, which can, by the way, be lies. 
So what will happen is, is that, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, but they were such a great man of God or such a great woman of God. Oh, well, wow, now that I know that. But nobody ever checks the source on that. Do you know the Bible says don't entertain the accusation against an elder unless it's by two or three witnesses? It's my brother who says he believes that truth can travel the entire world while the, I'm sorry, what, a lie can travel around the entire world while the truth is getting its boots on. And the third is that he tempts. He accuses, he tempts, and he lies in doing so. And what he's saying is, look at if they do all of that, they will be divided, and in verse 13, they'll have no joy. And he goes, I don't want that to be the case for anyone. I don't want you to be in a situation where the enemy, where you sit and you listen to his whole show, and what happens in the end is you hate all Christians, but you call yourself one, and I don't want any part of the church, though you're supposed to be, you know, because that's what happens when he accuses, and you believe all these lies, so you feel like you have to work off the debt that God paid instead of accepted by grace. And you're constantly chasing after the things of the world to fulfill you when Jesus is supposed to be enough. He says, would you please do that? I pray for their clarity. They would know who I am and they'd know what eternal life is really about. And I pray that for their safety. But third, I pray for their sanctity. Verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now you realize sanctify in its simple sense or sanctity literally just means being set apart. And the moment you said yes to Jesus, if you have, God is setting you apart. The same way that, as you know, we have two children, one born biologically and one adopted. But the moment that either one came into our home, so to speak, they were set apart from every other child in the planet. They're our children. But imagine them trying to pretend like they're not our children. How hurtful that would be to us. Because the rest of the world goes, oh, you're one of them. You're one of those people. You're children of the holidays. Yeah, like, like you think you're special because you have like that surname or something. It's amazing how the world can make you ashamed of a good thing. How does Jesus give us an example of what to do with that? He, sets, he sanctifies himself. He sets himself apart to help sanctify others. Because after all, you've got to do that by example. Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through the word. You realize who he's speaking about there? He's talking about us. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's praying for you in verse 20. In other words, as he knows the cross is ahead of him, he's looking and reaching beyond just the faces he sees that he knows will betray him before the night is over by bailing on him. He looks around and he sees everybody else and he looks and he sees our faces. I think Jesus at this point is looking for all the motivation he possibly can to get through this cross ordeal, and you would too. What's, it, what's beautiful in all of this, and I'd like you to, I'd like you to consider this, please, is that when Jesus was looking for the inspiration to get a little bit more strength to get through this, he added you to the list just so that he goes, okay, that's what I needed to see. I pray not only for these, but for those who would believe in me through their word, that they may be one. And that is our fourth thing, and that is unity. How does he do it? How has he helped us with that? He says, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and that the glory that you gave me, I've given them. In other words, what we see with this is that Jesus stayed totally unified with the Father to show us unity. And then Jesus actually, though being the God of everything, still uh, gladly took the humble spot to raise us up. What a crazy thought that is, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfect and one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. 
You know, when we're not unified, the world doesn't believe that, the, that Jesus was sent. When we're arguing over dumb things, the world doesn't believe that God loves us like that. So let's bring it down to the last of these. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, who you gave me, be, be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you, gave, which you have given me. You have loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is going to give little hints along the way. He's going to walk up the Mount of Transfiguration, take three of his boys with, who I don't think were the ones who had the greatest potential. I think those were the remedial class. Having taught secondary school for years, the guys who hang out with the most are not the ones that you think have the most potential. They're usually the ones that if you don't take, keep your eye on, they'll set something on fire. At least that's what I've noticed. And when I think of Peter, James, and John, I think of the remedial class. I think of the guy who, by the way, Jesus said to say, get behind me, Satan, too. And the other two who say, do you want me to call fire down on an entire village because they won't let us through? Sounds remedial to me. And yet he takes them up there. And they walk up a three-day journey to the top of the hill. And Jesus is glorified with a clothes whiter than any launder could launder. Emanating glory that is so bright they all cower and pass out. And then Peter says, he doesn't know what to say, so he says something. Let me say it again. He doesn't know what to say, so he says something. That's a general rule. Don't do that. If you don't know what to say, nothing is a great choice. It's good that we're here. This must be it. You're setting up your kingdom. Check it out. The three of us, we are going to be the ones at the top. And you could just see Jesus' meeting with Moses and Elijah. And you could see them looking, going, that's going to be the Pope. You know, I just, it's amazing for me to him to live. He's like, ah, oh, it's a work in progress. But then Moses would know. He was too, as was Elijah. But I imagine from that point forth as Jesus walked down that hill and we'd stand at the back of that head for two years, two and a half years as we've been following him, that head never looked the same again. You just never know when the next time is he might just wah, just get bright again like that. And it was just a hint. Paul writes, he dwells in inapproachable light. He saw a little bit of that and was blinded and had to be healed. And then Johnny, the guy who was writing this, we pulled up to heaven and see Jesus who, and I love this. You know, people really kind of know if, who you are when they see you at home. When you're, you know, when you're not kind of playing it up and you don't have all of your kind of personality makeup on and they just kind of see you with your shoes off and just being who you are. Now, I've made it my ambition to be just as gross in public as I am in private just so that you don't have any surprises. But I do, but I just love the fact that it's like if you see someone there, you kind of go, well, this is kind of what he really is. And John actually gets taken to Jesus' house, if you will. He gets taken to heaven. And what he sees is he sees somebody so brilliant and so perfect and so pure, he passes out from it, basically. falls to the ground from it. He even says it's like, Hachalibanan. Now, when was the last time you saw something and you thought, well, that's like Hachalibanan, Right? I mean, matter of fact, if you said the word in the first place, you probably were just gagging on something. And, and the word, by the way, when he says it, it's like we read it as burnished bronze. But the easiest answer we could give to that is arc welding. Have you ever seen an arc welder? The guy that's like when he's kind of spot welding something and he's got that thing and the sparks are flying everywhere. I have a friend who's a welder. He's an artist. And he's a very, very gifted metal artist. But he, I tell you, he has a good friend that we used to work with him on some of these projects. And this other guy, you know how they have those like Iron Man masks? You've seen those, right? Like the first Iron Man, not the cool red ones, right? You know, where that kind of whump thing kind of comes down like that. Just for a moment, this buddy like he had to do a spot. And what that means is he just had to go, 
pfft, like that, right? And, it's, you know, and he flipped up the lid and instead he went pfft, like this and it melted his contacts on his eyes. Yeah, that was a bad day. The point is, John says, how do I explain that kind of brightness? How do I explain that kind of light? And imagine, Jesus is like, hey, John. And John's like, ah. You know, how amazing it would be for John to encounter Jesus. And it's like, how you had to tone that down when you walked on earth so our brains didn't explode and our eyes didn't burn in our, in our faces. And, and the reason I say that is, Jesus says, look at Dad, what I really want is for them to be here with me. The last of those things is intimacy. He prayed for clarity, that we would know who Jesus really is and what eternal life really is. He prayed for safety in God's name and in God's word, that we would be safe from the enemy's lies and from his temptations and from his accusations. He prayed for sanctity by truth and by example, Jesus showed us. He prayed for unity in Jesus and in the Father. And finally, he prays for intimacy. Because you were not created to glorify God, nor to worship Him or to serve Him. You were created to be with Him. And all of the other things will fall into line if you get the first one right. Jesus didn't pray, you know, what I really pray is that they would serve me right. Or that they would learn how to write a better worship song. I mean, you know, you should hear Judas, that guy can't sing. Or whatever it is. What, What Jesus is saying, you know, the one thing I just really want is I just want to be with them, Dad. That's all I really want. And understand, isn't it beautiful? That's where He ends this. Because that's the whole purpose of the cross. He's going, you know what? After all of this, I just want to be with you. And if the cross is the only route there, then I'll take it. Hey, do you realize that there is the one person who knows everything about you would rather die than live without you? I want them to behold the glory that you you gave me before the world began. You know what that glory looks like? Well, he says, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You know what it looks like? It looks like somebody really loved. Oh, righteous Father, the world's not known you, but I've known you. And these, they've known that you sent me. I've declared him your name, and I'll continue to declare it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. By the way, he doesn't say at the end of this, in my name, Amen. And I think it's because Jesus was one of those people that was in such constant conversation with the Father. I don't think he ever wanted to, everything was a comma, like Paul's first sentences often in his epistles, where there could be 114 words. He just doesn't want to put a full stop on any of it because he's just, he doesn't want to break fellowship because he's going to the hardest moment of his life. Beloved, as we go to prayer, let me ask you, If you were to sit and watch Jesus pray this prayer, would you doubt for a moment his his love for you? Would you doubt for a moment his intention? Would you doubt for a moment his plan for your life? Would you doubt for a moment that his way is the best way? Would you doubt that he ever cared? It's amazing how a circumstance can flip you on your lid on it. But here at the moment, no moment will you ever face will be as hard as what Jesus had in the garden or beyond. I'm just here to say as we pray, if you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, can we pray that this would be like our prayer life? Well, the only thing Jesus said about himself is, could they just see me for who I really am? And then the rest was about us. 
Can you imagine ever praying, oh God, let them see me for who I really am? (laughs) We'd be more apt to pray, oh God, don't let them see me for that. Let them see my good stuff, that 2%, and I'm being generous. But imagine if our heart was so consumed with the Father that someone would go, Shamar, what's it like to walk with Jesus that way? When his disciples asked, teach us to pray, Jesus had never gone, boys, here's my pamphlet, wait till we get to section seven, prayer. They watched something and they're like, pardon me for the loose paraphrase, but he'd be like, dude, whatever's going on between you and the Father, I want that. Well, it starts with a relationship. Doesn't it? And Isaiah says that your sin and iniquity has separated you from God, but God laid it all upon his son so that he could pay for it. But he gives you the choice because he doesn't want this to be a forced relationship. He wants this to be one by choice. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Have you said yes to him? If you have, could we pray that God would make our prayer life like this? How about when you're facing something awful and you're like, oh Lord, use this to bring people to you. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for just the surface we've been able to scratch looking at this prayer. And there's so much more we could dig into. But what's clear and evident here is for a moment we got a glimpse. We got a whiff of it. And it's amazing. How easy it would be facing some hardship that's eminent. How easy it would be to, to just get self-consumed and full of pity to play the woe is me song instead of actually having a heart for other people to say, well, Lord, then could you make it, please, something that could change people's lives, bring people to you? I confess to you, Lord, it is so easy to just get consumed in the the craziness That I, that I listen to the lies of the enemy where it's like I feel entitled to just be a pain. And I pray that would change today. I pray that we could become people that when the world looks, they see something they don't have because we have the one thing they don't have and that is you. And you want them to have you. Please, today, transform our hearts. Make us people of vibrant prayer, intimate prayer. That our one heart's cry more than any is, Oh, God, that that we would be with you. No holds barred. And if there be any who have yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, then you may not have to, you may not have understood most or all of this, but if you understand that you need this gift that God is offering, the Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And I don't have to convince you if that tugging in your heart is God saying, he's right, you know. Pray this prayer with me. God, I I know I'm not a good person, 
I'm stained and I'm filthy from my own heart and the choices and thoughts that have come from it. But none of that surprises you. You know it all. But I believe you've already paid for all of that. You've made that clear in your scriptures. That you died on that cross for me and for my sin. I was buried and just like scripture promised on the third day rose again and you offer me that new life now. And I say yes. I know this may seem crazy, but I am saying yes because I need this gone. I want everything between me and you gone that I could have that relationship you created me to have with you. So I just want to say yes to you now, confessing Jesus is my ransom, my payment, and my Lord. Have me now, I pray, in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.